0: Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services Team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. This episode is brought to you by Satorius, a partner of Life Science Research and the Biopharmaceutical Industry. They are helping biotech scientists and engineers across the entire globe to develop and manufacture medicines from the first idea to production, so more people will have better access to medicine. Viral genomes are small, but their products have large consequences for their hosts. During infection, viruses reshape the host gene expression landscape through clever mechanisms that promote viral replication and survival. Nikki Spodge from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Britt Lonsinger, a professor in the Departments of Plant Microbial Biology and Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California, Berkeley, to learn more.
1: Over the past year, we have come to understand far too well the power that viruses yield. Not even considered alive by most virologists, these microorganisms exert control over their hosts with the aid of just a handful of genes, turning cells into virus factories. The ability of viruses to do so much with so little fascinates scientists like Britt Glounsinger.
2: Viruses are actually the reason I became a scientist. I had not picked a major by the time I was my third year as an undergraduate, and I picked up the book The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. It's a pretty interesting story of the early Ebola virus outbreaks, the heroic efforts that scientists and medical personnel went to find the source of that virus and describe the virus. Uh, And that book just completely captivated me. I remember starting the book and thinking these people are crazy, who would work on this virus, who would go out in the field and do these insane things, and by the time I got to the end of the book, I remember thinking there was nothing more fascinating than these tiny biological agents which had less than 10 genes and could wreak so much havoc in humans, and that was my first introduction into the power of viral gene regulation and what genes could do and how a few genes could completely change the inside of a cell.
1: An average eukaryotic virus has a million times less genetic information than the host cell it infects. Within viral genomes, the genes are tightly packed, facilitating rapid replication. Although the genes are few, they code for proteins that are multitaskers. For example, the influenza NS1 protein inhibits the innate immune response regulates viral RNA and protein synthesis, and disrupts host gene expression and cell signaling pathways. To further diversify their functional portfolio, viruses take advantage of host gene expression, tapping into complex networks of cell machinery.
2: I think of gene expression often as like a complicated circuit in which there are many, many different inputs that all have to coordinate to give a particular gene expression output. DNA viruses in particular interface with lots of components of this circuitry. Um, And that's because their genomes are much smaller than our genomes, so they don't have the genomic real estate to encode all of the factors they need. Instead, they're basically borrowing and stealing and repurposing those factors that already exist in the cell. We think that by studying how viruses interface with this gene expression machinery, we can learn not only what viruses need in order to take over a cell and to replicate themselves, but we can also learn a lot about the fundamental principles and players involved in gene regulation. Because viruses are not inventors, they are thieves. So if you find pathway or a process that the virus is using, you can be almost certain that that plays some important role normally in the context of the host cell, and it's just the virus is repurposing it for itself.
1: Clownsinger studies viral control of host gene expression in herpes viruses, such as Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, or KSHV, the main cause of AIDS-associated cancers. Scientists estimate that herpes viruses are between 200 to 400 million years old, so they've had a tremendous amount of time to evolve. Upon infection, they form associations with their hosts that last a lifetime. Nearly everyone on the planet is infected with at least one type of herpes virus, whether they know it or not. When a herpes virus infects a cell, it releases its genome into the host's nucleus, where the viral DNA circularizes into a structure called an episome, which tethers to a host chromosome. The epizome hitches a ride on the host's genetic material, replicating along with the rest of the cell it infected.
2: The reason you can never clear a herpes virus infection is that they can establish this quiescent state called latency, where there's very few viral genes expressed, and it's a, a phase where the immune system can't even tell that the cell is infected because the cell is just fine otherwise that allows the virus to stick with its host incognito um, for many years. However, that state doesn't allow the virus to amplify and spread to new hosts, which is pretty much the goal of every viral infection. In order to do that, it has to switch out of this silent latent state and into a stage that allows it to actively replicate amplify its viral genome, express the full suite of viral genes needed to replicate that genome and assemble new progeny virions, which are then released. As the virus is replicating, it is changing many different facets of the host gene expression cascade in order to complete its own viral life cycle.
1: Because of our long evolutionary history with herpesviruses, they've developed sophisticated and insidious strategies to utilize our gene expression machinery. Many viruses dramatically deplete the pool of cellular mRNA that acts as instructions for protein production. This strategy is called host shutoff because the mRNA changes interfere with the host's ability to express its own genes. Viruses that cause host shutoff often encode an mRNA-targeting endonuclease enzyme that cuts mRNA in the cytoplasm into pieces decreasing the pool of transcripts that drive protein expression.
2: Every virus is in competition with its host cell for access to the translation machinery. No virus can encode the protein synthesis machinery because that just takes more genomic real estate than any virus has. And so every virus has to find a way to access ribosomes at the same time as cellular RNAs are accessing ribosomes. One of the reasons why many viruses will start to get rid of host messenger RNAs is this may allow them to have a competitive advantage and gain access to those host ribosomes. In addition to sort of competing for ribosomes, this allows the viruses to evade the innate immune system. And that's because Anytime a cell detects that it's infected, it's looking for molecules that are foreign, things like viral RNA or viral DNA in the cytoplasm. They'll set off an alarm system that involves interferon to turn on sets of genes that allow cells to basically arm themselves and prepare for an infection. But that alarm system inherently requires gene expression because to turn on the alarm, you have to turn on gene expression. And so by viruses dampening gene expression through the process of host shutoff, they can dampen that innate immune alarm system to fly below the immunological radar.
1: Some viral endonucleases specifically cleave host mRNA, while others, such as the KSHV-SOX nuclease, also cut their own. Destroying its own mRNA may seem counterintuitive, but this may be a strategy to regulate viral gene expression while simultaneously shutting down the host. Glounsinger set out to determine how these nucleases know which mRNAs to cut and which to leave alone to allow the viral life cycle to progress. Host shutoff is often extensive. Some viral enzymes cleave thousands of different mRNAs. But some host RNAs have sequences called nuclease escape elements that actively protect them against cleavage from viral, but not cellular, nucleases. Perhaps viruses spare certain host mRNAs that are needed during their own life cycles. Or maybe this is a mechanism spearheaded by the host to spare itself from viruses' attack. Glounsinger thinks the answer may be complicated, where in some cases the viruses benefit, while in others, nuclease escape is best for the host. Determining how enzymes such as SOX find their mRNA targets was more challenging than it first appeared. Glounsinger took years to identify the recognition site for viral endonuclease cleavage. The
2: idea that was perplexing to us for a long time is that you have this nuclease that can target most messenger RNAs, which suggests that the recognition site must be pretty simple, right? But we had done some experiments where we tried to map the boundaries of what needed to be recognized. And those experiments told us that In fact, it wasn't just a couple of nucleotides that it seemed like you needed a lot of sequence for recognition, like 50 to 200 nucleotides of context. And that was a paradox for us. How could you have an enzyme that targeted so many different messenger RNAs, but yet had a recognition element that just seemed really complex? And we think the answer is that it's not so much the sequence. But perhaps many different RNA sequences could adopt a particular structure that would be recognized by the nuclease, but you need enough sequence context to form that structure. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to identify what these targeting elements are. You actually have to be able to think about it in the context of what structure might that adopt and is that an appropriate structure for the nuclease to recognize.
1: The reduction of the mRNA pool by viral nucleases has surprising consequences beyond protein production. Scientists often think about gene expression as a linear sequence of events. RNA polymerase II makes an mRNA in the nucleus, and the mRNA is spliced and processed before moving into the cytoplasm, where ribosomes ultimately translate it into protein. Once the mRNA has fulfilled its job, it is degraded by cellular nucleases. Previously, Researchers discovered that the information from the final stage of the mRNA life cycle feeds back to influence transcription in the nucleus. Under normal conditions, mRNA degradation in the cytoplasm increases mRNA synthesis to maintain homeostasis. Gloundsinger wondered whether the same was true during viral infections.
2: Under conditions of viral infection, cells rarely want to maintain homeostasis. This is a situation of threat they might interpret those changing mRNA pools very differently than in an uninfected cell. And because we know that many different viruses encode these nucleases that trigger depletion of messenger RNA, we thought that that depletion of messenger RNA in the cytoplasm might yield a different outcome for RNA synthesis. What we found was that accelerated RNA degradation in the cytoplasm by these viral nucleases triggers a signaling pathway that leads to suppression of new messenger RNA synthesis in the nucleus. So this is an amplification of the shutdown. Instead of the cell trying to recover from all the mRNA depletion by saying, let's produce a whole lot more mRNA, let's kick our RNA polymerase 2 into high gear. Instead, the cell is likely receiving a signal that says there's a signature of infection in the cytoplasm, which may be all of this RNA degradation. And we're going to respond to that by eliciting a shutdown of many core processes. We know that DNA viruses that replicate in the nucleus, like herpes viruses, need the nuclear RNA synthesis machinery, so this may be an attempt by the cell to shut that down as well.
1: DNA viruses also produce their own mRNA in the nucleus, yet they avoid this transcriptional shutdown. RNA polymerase II still works on viral DNA to produce mRNA because the viruses replicate in specialized nuclear compartments called replication factories. Most often, the factories are not membrane-bound structures. Rather, they are local concentrations of viral nucleic acids and proteins involved in viral replication and gene expression that can exclude factors, such as the cellular signals attempting to turn down transcription. Based on her research, Gloutsinger thinks that RNA-binding proteins are the cytoplasmic signal that turns down mRNA synthesis in the nucleus. RNAs are coded in a whole suite of different proteins that control their localization, translation, stability, and function. However, when RNA is degraded, the RNA-binding proteins are released.
2: We know that these RNA-binding proteins often move around into different locations in the cell, particularly shuttling between the nucleus and the cytoplasm because RNA itself starts in the nucleus and often ends up in the cytoplasm. We started looking at what was happening to the RNA-binding proteins under conditions of enhanced cytoplasmic RNA decay. And what we found is that many RNA-binding proteins started to shift their location out of the cytoplasm and into the nucleus. We see these as sort of the shuttlers of information from the cytoplasm to the nucleus about the state of the RNA pool. If you have no aberrant levels of RNA decay, if everything is normal, well, most of these RNA-binding proteins may be soaked up by binding RNA in the cytoplasm. But if a virus comes in, has a nuclease that starts trashing all the RNA in the cytoplasm, all these RNA-binding proteins leave that RNA and then sort of go into the nucleus. And so their concentration changes. That may convey a stress signal to the nucleus that uh, tells the cell to
0: dampen transcription.
1: Not only do viruses affect their hosts by manipulating mRNA levels, but they also influence other host molecules involved in gene and protein expression. RNA polymerase 3 makes transfer RNAs, or tRNAs, that bind and deliver amino acids to growing protein strands. In contrast to shutting down mRNA synthesis, herpes viruses turn up RNA polymerase 3 activity. Curiously, this change doesn't affect the abundance of mature tRNAs. Rather, it increases the pool of premature tRNAs that have yet to be processed and charged with amino acids. While the main function of tRNAs is protein production, Cells can also cleave them into fragments that function as signaling molecules for a variety of cellular processes. Glounsinger thinks that tRNA fragmentation may be important for viral control of the host. Her next step is to figure out what processes these tRNA fragments may be controlling during viral infection and to understand their surprising link to mRNA pool degradation.
2: We thought we were working on two completely different stories when we were studying the viral endonuclease SOX and Pol II transcriptional repression. We thought that was totally separate from this RNA polymerase 3 and pre-tRNA induction phenotype. However, it turns out that these are probably to some extent linked phenotypes in the cell. And the reason for that is that... As the viral endonuclease is degrading all of these RNAs in the cell, those RNAs are not getting translated into protein. And a number of the proteins that are not getting translated are involved in processing those transfer RNAs when they're made. If you have not as many proteins to process the transfer RNAs, you can get a buildup of premature tRNAs. The hypothesis is that messenger RNA degradation has one downstream consequence that leads to PAL II suppression and another downstream consequence that actually maybe stalls tRNA processing, allowing the cell to accumulate higher levels of these immature, unprocessed tRNAs.
1: Virus-host interactions are complex and produce unexpected consequences for gene expression and cellular functions. In the future, Glownsinger will continue to unravel these mysteries. What she learns about viral control of transcription and translation illuminates both drug discovery and basic cellular biology by highlighting the essential components of these processes.
2: I think that in order to fight viral infections effectively and in an informed way, you have to know how the virus is changing the host. You have to know what the virus needs to take, you have to know how it's taking it, and that information can allow you to rationally design inhibitors or strategies to stop the virus. And so we're trying to understand the virus host interaction because the better we understand it, the more opportunities we might present for interventions. The other way we think about our research, though, is that this tells us not only how the virus works, but it's providing information about how the cell works, too viruses aren't inventors they're thieves so we can use them as tools for discovery to understand the biology of our own cells
0: Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Nikki Spotch. and thank you to Satorius for sponsoring this episode Please join us next month as we learn about canine cognition and behavior through FMRI brain imaging. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.